Welcome to Practical Christian Living. I want to answer the question as to whether or not a Christian can be demonized or possessed. And the answer to that is no. So let's move on. Uh, now let me give you a couple reasons why. Really, that's all we need to say. You, you can be oppressed by the enemy, and I want to talk about that in a minute, but you cannot be possessed. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. The same Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead lives inside of you if you abide in Christ your Savior. And quite simply, if the Spirit resides in you, there's no room for anyone else. Today, as we continue our study of Jesus' significant appointment with the disciples in the upper room, we're studying the Last Supper and Jesus' betrayal by one of his followers. Stay with us as we learn how to walk in the certainty that the Holy Spirit is alive and working inside of us as believers in Christ. With part two of our study out of John 13, 18 through 30, here's Robert Furrow. The Bible says in, in John 6, that no one comes to the Son unless the Father first draws him. So we know that salvation is God's idea and he chooses you. You haven't chosen me, I've chosen you. But once he chooses you, once he draws you in, you have to choose him. You have to believe. Whosoever will, let him come. Whoever believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. And there are those today who say that you have no part in salvation. That God either chooses you and you're lost, or you're lost and you can't be chosen. Irresistible grace and limited atonement, which I could not disagree with more. I don't have a beef I, I'm not saying that people, that this is Reformed theology, this is extreme Calvinism, okay? Or, or Calvinism in general, we could say. I don't have a problem with Calvinists. I don't have a problem with Reformed theology. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are doing the work of the gospel. This is just an area that I disagree with them on. I don't think they're horrible people. I'm not going to claim they're not saved. Even though some of them will claim that we're not saved because we don't believe in Calvinism. I'd like to know where that's at in the Bible. Can you find that for me? If you don't believe we're all predestined, then you're not saved. See, I believe that we are predestined, but I don't believe my every move is, to be, is predestined. You don't know right now whether I'm going to go right or left, but God does. And I'm predestined right now to go right or left. Oh, I tried to go right, but I was predestined to go left. What am I going to do? No, when the Bible says that we are predestined, it says we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that God chose us before the, the foundations of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, that we would be predestined in him, a royal generation, a holy priesthood, and all of those other things. But the, the predestination is connected to God's foreknowledge. Romans 8, 29. Whom God foreknew, he also predestined. It's simply saying that God knows everything. And, I, and everybody's going to agree with that. Every Reformed theology guy, every lapsetarian, there's a word for you, look it up, it's extreme Calvinism, which is what lapsetarianism is. Every one of them believe that God has foreknowledge. But here's what they say. But God doesn't use his foreknowledge when choosing people. He just takes two vessels and goes, burn heaven. He doesn't use his foreknowledge. Tell me, why would God set his foreknowledge aside when he's choosing people? Because they also believe in total depravity, which I don't. I believe that we are totally depraved, don't get me wrong. But I don't believe in total depravity as Calvinism teaches it which means that you cannot receive Jesus. You don't even have it in you to receive him. So you're either chosen or you're rejected. And that teaches that some of you guys here are rejected by God and you can't be saved. Irresistible grace. 
Some of you guys here are saved and you can't be lost. Limited atonement. I disagree with all of that. Again, I'm not saying that they're, they're bad people. This is just, we, we, we believe in the cross. We believe in the resurrection. They believe people have to confess Jesus, that if you're chosen, you're going to believe in Jesus. And if you're not chosen, you're not going to believe in him. We believe in that. And in Romans chapter 9, where it says, who are you to speak against God? If God chooses one vessel for destruction and another vessel for salvation, who are you to speak against God? They always like to use that. They like to say that to me. Who are you to speak against God if God decides to choose and reject one person or another? But don't you see in context, he's saying the person who is rejected and who will go to hell is the one who doesn't believe. The person who receives eternity is the person who believes. Remember in context, this is really profound. Romans chapter 9 comes before Romans chapter 10. Deep, right? What's Romans chapter 10? If you believe and confess, you will be saved. And so to my Calvinist brothers and sisters in Christ that I have no animosity for, and I don't even want to argue with you, all right? I'll, I'll share with you what you believe and I believe, okay? I have no problem with that. But, but I would say to you, who are you to speak against God? If God says, I want to give salvation to people who choose to believe me, who are you to say that can't happen? Who are you to say what vessels God would choose for honor or dishonor? God has chosen the vessels for honor for those who would believe in him. And God has chosen for dishonor those who do not believe in him. And so God, through his foreknowledge, knew that you would, you would follow him. So before the foundations of the world, he predestined your life that you would be conformed to the image of his son. God predestines. And so Judas made decisions. And, when he, and God knew what decisions he would make. And so he wrote it what the betrayer would be like. If Judas was not going to betray him, we would read something different. And so Judas is still responsible. It's like if you record a football game. You come back to watch it. Everything on that football game has already been done. Every pass, every play, it's been done. Somebody knows every one of them. But those guys on the field still had free will to do every play that they could do. The coach still could call any play that he wanted to, even though it's all done. It's set in stone. It's not going to change. That coach still had free will when he called it. Amen. So Judas still had free will, and that's why he's responsible and God will never be unjust for condemning you. God knows whether or not you would receive him. And you are not condemned because of your actions. You are not condemned because of sin. You're condemned because you don't receive Jesus and find forgiveness from your sin. Yes, sin condemns us, but you reject that which can forgive you. So I don't have time to go much deeper into that. But as to the question, was Judas predestined to betray Jesus? Well, yes, but he had free will. <laughs> yes, he was predestined because he, he was going to do it. But he had his free will and he could have not done it. And I think Jesus kept, gave him every chance. He gave him every chance, washing his feet, giving him communion, that he would not do that. And so he says, um, are we still in verse 18? How much time do I have? Uh, verse 19, now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe me. He says, I'm going to tell you about a betrayer so that when it happens, you're going to believe me. This is prophecy for the sake of Christians. And this is important for us. Prophecy is not necessarily for the sake of non-believers. I've seen people saved because of prophecy, but rarely. Most often people get saved because God touches their heart and draws them in. But prophecy is very powerful to you and me. When we read a prophecy in the Old Testament, like Daniel chapter 9, and we go, wow, this was the, the, the time of the Messiah was foretold in the Old Testament. 
from the command of Artaxerxes to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until Messiah would be 483 years. We know when that command was, and when we put it together, we hit the Messiah, really at the end of his ministry, powerful. But not for non-believers. Non-believers, they go, eh. They don't even care that much about the Bible. You and I do, and, and it's for us. So he says, I'm giving you this because I want you guys to know. He wanted them to have something that they would know. And so he says to them in verse 20, most assuredly I say to you, whoever receives, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me, he who receives me, receives him who sent me. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us, this delight and salt of the world, I'm with you. Wherever you go, I'm with you. And whoever receives what you say receives me. And those who receive you receive me. So Jesus is with us everywhere that we go. And he just wants his disciples to know that. So then in verse 21, he returns back to the betrayer. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. It troubled him that one of the ones that he would choose, he loved Judas and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. I mean, these are the 12 guys they know. It, they, they didn't know that Judas was the bad guy. When Jesus said, Behold, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, they didn't all go, It's Judas, we all know that. He's the problem guy. I, I love that each one of them said, the Bible tells us in both Matthew and Mark, Is it me, Lord? They went around the table, Is it me, Lord? I've got to be honest with you as I as I read about Judas being chosen by God and yet not choosing God, knowing that we could be called, drawn by God and not respond to that drawing, or maybe we could pretend to respond to it, that I found myself praying this last week, Lord, I don't want to be a Judas. Like, like the disciples, I, am I a Judas? Am I not genuinely, sincerely following you? Do I look good but not really following you? And I think that's healthy for every one of us, just like it was for the disciples. I don't think it was an unhealthy thing for them to, to lean over to Jesus and say, is it me, Lord? I, I think it's a healthy thing. But the interesting thing is when you go back and read it, especially in Matthew, Judah says, everybody else says, Lord, is it me? But Judah says, is it I, Rabbi? He doesn't use the word Lord. That's interesting to me. He says, teacher. And when he kisses him on the cheek and betrays him, he says, teacher, and kisses him. I, I wonder if, if it became evident that Jesus was never his Lord. He was his teacher. He was his rabbi. But he was never his Lord. The other disciples said, Lord, is it me? Maybe there's something to that. Is Jesus just your teacher? Are you just learning about Christianity? Or are you, do you really have a relationship with Jesus? And so then in verse 23, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples. Now, the New King James and the King James Bibles take this section and makes it sound weird, Okay. But if you read it in the NIV or the ESV, it makes it a lot more explainable what's happening here. They were not sitting at a table like we sit at a table. They were reclining at a table low to the ground. This is the way they ate. And they reclined on their left side, everybody, and you used your right hand to eat the different things that were on the table. And it was a U-shaped table usually for a group of people this side. And you had a place of honor on your right and on your left. Judas was on his left and John was on his right. John is the youngest of the disciples. Jesus had to go to John and go, I want to give you the position of honor. And go to Judas, I want to give you the position of honor. Again, reaching out to him in love. 
And so when it says that he was in his bosom, it doesn't mean, and you see the picture, um, Leonardo da Vinci, right, where he's leaning over on Jesus. That's not what was happening. They were all reclining around, and in front of Jesus was John as he was sitting and reclining and eating, and behind him was Judas. So he would have to turn around and say something specifically to Judas, but John just had to lean back and ask him. That's what's happening. So when it says that he was in his bosom, it just means he was sitting right in front of him. That's what it means. That's what the word is. It sounds weird in this, but that's what it is. And then he says, Then Simon Peter therefore motioned and asked him who it was who we spoke. So Simon Peter motions to John to ask him. Because John's right next to him. Jesus is here. John's here. And so it says, Then leaning back on Jesus' breast. Again, then IV makes it clear. He just leans back towards Jesus. And he says, Who is it? He's the only one at the table that can do that. Judas could. From the other side, Judas could go, who is it? John could go, who is it? And so he leans back and he says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, to whom I give the piece of bread and have dipped it. And having given the bread, he dipped it. Then, uh, and he gave it to Judas Iscariot, then uh, the son of Simon. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Now, when we read this, it seems like it all happens really fast. But when you read Matthew and Mark, you learn that there's some, some breaks between when he gives the bread. He says, to whom I'm going to give the bread. And then this is natural part of the Passover where he gives the bread to someone. And so he gives the bread to Judas and they don't make the connection. But at this moment, Satan enters him. This is, this is Satan, okay? Earlier he had said one of them is the devil and he meant accuser. But now he means Satan, the, the bad guy of history. The, the one who was in the garden, the serpent of old the dragon of revelation. This is Satan. He gets possessed by him. And of course, we know that Judas is not a true believer. Okay, he's not a sincere believer. And so Satan can possess him. But there comes a false doctrine around every few years. It hasn't been around for a while, so it must be out there coming soon. Winds of doctrine blow around. And there's a wind of doctrine that blows around that Christians can be demon possessed. Or they'll change the word of possession to be demonized or something slightly different and then they'll say, but when you push them, it means a demon's inside of them, okay? And so I want to answer the question as to whether or not a Christian can be demonized or possessed. And the answer to that is no. So let's move on. Uh, now, let me give you a couple reasons why. Really, that's all we need to say. You, you can be oppressed by the enemy, and I want to talk about that in a minute, but you cannot be possessed. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world, Amen. right? Uh, because uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, the Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead is inside of you. So if you've got the Spirit of God who's inside of you, here it is. It could boil down to this. There's no room for a demon to possess you because you're already possessed. You're possessed by the Spirit of God. You're possessed by a spirit already. Somebody says that explains so much but you're possessed by the Holy Spirit. And where a demon, demonic spirit forces people, gets inside of people, takes control of them and makes them do things. And in the Bible, men were possessed, women were possessed, children were possessed, and pigs were possessed. But never was a Christian possessed. Never was a genuine follower of Jesus possessed. Not in any of the Gospels, not in the book of Acts, not referred to in any of the epistles. Neither were we told by Jesus or any of the apostles in the epistles how we should handle a person who was demon-possessed. 
Take them in the room and plead the blood over them or tell this demon to get out for four or five hours. All of these things are done to Christians and should not be done to Christians. And they do it, and I've seen this done, and they do it because I was a part of a movement that did it, part of the charismatic movement that cast demons out of Christians. And sooner, after four or five hours, you break down. After four or five hours of someone saying to you, come out, demon, speak to me, demon, finally you go, I'm not going to let him go. And they're like, see? <laughs> he's demon-possessed. No, you wore him down. He's going to say what he's got to say to get out of the room, right? And so you have the Spirit of God inside of you so there's no room. Somebody told me one time when they were trying to defend demonism, being demonized, they said, well, there's different compartments and the Holy Spirit's in one compartment and the demon's in another compartment. And I said, oh, we're like apartments. Do they have hallways? Did Jesus and the devil meet in the hallway? Hey, how are you doing? Not so good today. Ah, sorry about that. I hope you don't do good anyway. I'm being silly, but it's silly to say that Christians can be possessed. And when you go through the scriptures, you learn that you can be oppressed. And what do I mean by oppressed? I need to define this. It means that he can have an outward influence on your life. You give a place to the enemy. You don't put on your armor. You don't take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, which is our spiritual weapon, which is powerful in God for the pulling down of strongholds, right? There's a lot the Bible says about spiritual warfare. And there's a lot of Christians that the enemy is able to oppress you. Some of you guys, the enemy is oppressing your marriages because you're not wanting to give God the proper place in your marriages. And so Satan's had a, had a place to come in. He is not possessing each individual. He is oppressing you because you're not, you're not obedient to what the Word of God says. You haven't put on your armor. You don't have your breastplate of righteousness on. You're walking around in a sinful state. You, you don't have the shield of faith where you're trusting God's word completely. You're trusting in the word of some psychologist. You're trusting in the word of our culture. You're not trusting in the word of God. It's a whole other topic. I'm running out of time. But it's good enough for us to say that Satan did enter Judas because he wasn't a believer and could not have entered him if he had been a genuine believer. And if Satan is oppressing you or some part of your life, then put on the armor and ask Jesus to set you free from that strong man. Jesus said, how do you plunder a strong man's goods? How do you, you know, guy's got a strong man. How do you go in his house and get his things if he's strong? You get a stronger than the strong man to go get him. You hire somebody to go whoop him and get his stuff. And Jesus says, I am stronger. Jesus is the stronger one. We, we, we say, Lord, help me. Lord, defend me from this demon. I don't ever have to battle a demonic spirit. If, if I had to battle a demonic spirit, I'd lose. Robert Furrow against the host of wickedness. Eh, one wickedness, not a host of them. He's going to lose. But I'm not going to lose because I have Jesus Christ. I like what Greg Laurie says. Amen. I like what Greg Laurie says. The second time I used him in this message, when the devil comes knocking at my door, I send Jesus to answer the door. That's the idea. All right. So, um, so he, he says, whoever I did this in, he gives him to Satan. Uh, Satan comes in and dwells in him. And Jesus says, go and do what you do quickly. Okay. Then Jesus said to him, do, do what you do quickly. None of them knew for what reason he said this because there was a break between it. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had sent him to buy those things which they needed for the feast or that he should go and give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, now he's possessed by Satan. He went out immediately and it was night. It was night for Judas. It was nighttime and it was night in, in the life of Judas. He didn't have to do this but he did. He, um, he leaves there. He goes and tells them he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes a group of people with him. He tells the one that I kissed, I want you to take. 
He goes and kisses Jesus and Jesus says, you're going to betray me with a kiss. Irony, right? And they arrest Jesus. And we're going to talk about what happens in between because a lot does, but he gets condemned. And when Judas hears that he's condemned, he goes back to the temple and he throws the money down. What was his motive there? I don't know what his motive was. Maybe he thought, if I could push Jesus, Jesus who raised people from the dead and calm storms will bring about some change in Jerusalem, Israel, but Jesus will never be manipulated. He tried to manipulate Jesus for whatever his reasons were, which we don't know, and it didn't work. And so I'm going to put the two different accounts of Judas's death together. So Judas, either Judas gathered the money back together again because they rejected it, or more likely, after Judas threw him there and went and got a rope and hung himself on a piece of land, the priests had a dilemma. They gathered the money together. They didn't know what to do with it because it's blood money. They can't put it back in the treasury. Their, their hypocrisy knows no bounds, right? They'll murder a man, but they won't put what they call blood money back into their treasury. So they go and buy the piece of land that Judas killed himself on, which in their day was very easy to do. It didn't have a lot of contracts and stuff with it. You just go purchase the land. So either Judas or them purchased the land that he hung himself on. Well, he hung himself on a Friday, which meant that the next day was a Sabbath. And there might have been two Sabbath days because Passover is a floating holiday. And there might have been a Passover and then the real Passover. And so on Friday, he hangs himself, but they can't take his body down on the, on the Sabbath because if they touch his body, they can't keep Passover. They can't touch his body on the Sabbath day. They're going to be unclean. So they let him hang for a couple of days. Just the same reason they couldn't go and prepare the body of Jesus in the tomb because it was Sabbath day. Same exact reason. And so he hung up there. Now what happens when you hang up in the heat for a couple of days? You bloat. Now I'm just going to get gross, okay? But it's what the Bible says. The Bible's gross, not me. I know that sounds really bad, but you understand what I'm saying. And so uh, either the rope broke, a branch broke, or somebody cut him down. And in the book of Acts, it says he fell headlong landed on the ground and his guts burst open. I know, I know, that's what it says, okay? Now, some people say there's a contradiction because Acts says that he went out, bought a piece of ground and fell headlong and his guts spilled out. But there's really not a contradiction because your guts don't spill out of you if you just jump, if you're alive and you jump off. You have to get bloated first before, that's just the way it is, it's gross. But in Acts, they meant for it to be that way. They meant to say the end of this guy was awful. Jesus said it would have been better if he wouldn't have been born. The end of this man is that he fell headlong and his guts burst out and that that is the, the life of someone who doesn't sincerely follow Jesus Christ. The end is not going to be good. That's what the book of Acts wanted to say. For us to evaluate ourselves and know whether or not we're sincere and genuine. And if one out of 12 Christians are not sincere, then there's people here who aren't. And I don't know whether that ratio follows through but we got to think that there are Judases among us. And I don't mean betrayers when I say that. I simply mean people who aren't following sincerely. You're, you look like a Christian, you act like one, but you're not really. And so at the close of this message, I want to give you an opportunity to surrender your life to Christ. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can spend so much time looking at the motives of Judas. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit would speak to us about whether or not we genuinely serve you. We want to be sincere. We want to be without hypocrisy. We want to put on our breastplate of righteousness. We want to confess our sins to you when we sin. We're sorry when we go down a certain mindset that leads us into rebellion against you. And we know that that can happen to Christians, but we also know that if we're not sincere and we're playing a game, that you will not be manipulated. You will not be mocked. And we don't want to be like Judas who tried to manipulate you. It will never work. 
And so we pray that you would help us now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.